21 is where we are in our scripture reading today. Genesis chapter uh, 21. We're continuing our studies through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 21. And we want to begin reading in uh, verse 1 of this chapter. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1. We read, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman, and all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for Isaac shall thy seed be called. Uh, for, sorry, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. She went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, and lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and dwelt in the wilderness, and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him, a wife, out of the land of Egypt. And we trust God will bless his eternal and inspired word to our hearts this morning. Well, as we open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, we find a home that is in disarray. There is, of course, laughter in the early part of this chapter as Isaac, the child of promise, is born. But there are also tears as Ishmael, the son of compromise, has to leave the home. 
For 16 to 17 years, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar have to know of Hale being trying to patch things up in their relationship. You know the story. Sarah had suggested that Abraham have a son by Hagar, and Ishmael was born. The idea was that the boy would provide the basis upon which the promises of God to Abraham might be fulfilled. It was a mistake. It was an act of unbelief. It was a sin that brought into question God's word and faithfulness. Now, over a decade later, we see the consequence of those actions rumbling on in this home. And and this chapter is set against the background of those brooding resentments and that rage that Sarah in particular felt as she allowed her past to bring up within her a root of bitterness. In the words of Charles Swindoll, though every act of sin is forgivable, the effects of some sins are not erasable. Notice in verses 1 to 8, there was joy in that home. We read, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So verses 1 and 2 remind us that the promise of God concerning Isaac's birth was both foretold and fulfilled. God had promised Abraham a son. He had promised that this boy would come by means of Sarah. And so it proved. Notice in those first few verses, those words, as he had said, as he had spoken. God's promises are always good. God always does what he says he will do. He always fulfills that which he speaks. And we might have to wait, as Abraham did, uh, for some 25 years to see those promises realized and materialized. But understand that always in God's good time, everything he has promised will come to pass and everything will be done just as he said and just as he has spoken. God's promise to Abraham had been foretold. And then we see it, God's promise was fulfilled in verse 2, at the set time, that's what it says, at the set time of which God had spoken to him, literally at the appointed time. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and verses 1 and 2, Solomon wrote, To everything there is a season and a time and a purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die and so friends this was God's set time it was the time for Isaac to be born God doesn't rely on chance nothing happens by accident God always has his own order he doesn't act in disorder he works with clockwork precision he is not the God of confusion he's ever working toward his own end it was Isaac's time to be born. And he was named just as God commanded him to be. The name means laughter or he laughs. And it was given as a permanent reminder to this couple of God's faithfulness to them. Abraham, if you recall, had laughed when God revealed to him that Sarah would bear him a son in her old age. And Sarah too had laughed, albeit 
in doubt when she overheard at that conversation and yet with all God had affirmed his promises to her also. So Isaac came along and he brought laughter into that home. Newborn babies have a way of doing that, don't they? When babies are born into a home very often, there is joy and there should be joy when a little child enters into the family and everybody gathers around and they coo and they caw and they try to figure out who this child looks like, don't they? He looks like his father. He looks like his mother. Look, he has his daddy's eyebrows. Look, you know, she has her her mother's smile or whatever it is. And everybody's filled with joy. So this was a happy home at the outset of this chapter. And Abraham, remembering God's covenant with him, took his son and circumcised him the eighth day as he was commanded to do. So far, so good. There's rejoicing in that family. And you read in verse 8, that the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now this was the custom of the day. A child's education in Bible times began as soon as he was no longer breastfed. And in those days a child would be breastfed all the way up perhaps to as old as five years of age. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 28, the prophet alludes to this custom when he says this in verse 8, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. So when a child got to be about three or five years of age, somewhere in between there, three, four, five years of age, they would mark that day. The day when the mother stopped feeding the child would be a corner, would be a, a landmark day in the family. And they would mark that day, much like we do in our, in our homes, perhaps if a child is going to school for the first time. It's a milestone along life's journey. You know, in, our, in their culture, instead of taking photographs, you know what we do? We, every, you, know, you know, as September comes, if you're on social media, you'll see all the photographs. Everybody gets their wee ones dressed up in their school uniform on the first day and they have to stand in the family living room or at the front door with their little school bag on and everybody celebrates the child going off to school and so that's how we celebrate it but in their time they had a feast they had a a family meal they had a get together because this was considered a pivotal moment in a child's development he was no longer reliant on his mother but now he was heading off into school as it were his education was about to begin but then as now these family occasions often revealed friction within a home within the family circle and when relationships were strained that strain was often seen it was often often evident when the whole family get together we find that even in our society don't we you know, there are families, they get together at Christmas and it all seems like a good idea, doesn't it? And then uh, they, their tensions are revealed and sometimes arguments begin around the Christmas dinner table or later on in the day. And, and instead of going home happy, everybody goes out not talking to one another. Sometimes that happens in weddings. You know, when a young couple are trying to decide who they are going to invite and who they can't invite. And of course, there's always some maverick uncle that they don't want at the wedding, isn't there? Some poor fella. And they're always saying, what are we going to do with Uncle Joe? We can't have him come. Not with his record. Not with him just being out of prison and all. <laughs> Dear knows what he'll say to the minister. <laughs> so there's tension there. 
And even sometimes in funerals, there's tension. You know, I took a funeral some years ago where I, an estranged daughter showed up at their, her father's funeral and sat right on the front row in the family pew and, and the family were very agitated that she took that place and, and were trying to get her to move and to allow the rest of the family to sit there and she wasn't having it and a squabble developed and voices were raised and things were thrown around the crematorium and I'm standing there trying to conduct the funeral. Tensions in a family circle. There was joy in this home, but there was also jealousy in this home. Look at verse 8 again. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abram's sight because of his son. God said unto Abram, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is my seed. Now, if Isaac is somewhere between three and five years of age at this point, Ishmael is somewhere between 16 to 18 years of age. And he resents all the attention that this newborn is receiving. You see, for the greater part of his life, he has been the golden boy in the home, the only son. And in his mind, and and perhaps even in his mother's mind, he was the one who was going to inherit the covenantal blessing, the covenantal promises. And uh, yet with all, that was clearly a mistake and a sin. And it uh, it was soon discovered to be a mistake and a sin. Now with the arrival of baby Isaac, well, that mistake is magnified. And he realizes that all the attention now has moved from Ishmael, the firstborn, unto Isaac, the infant. And he resents that. You know, you can sympathize a little bit with Ishmael. Of course, he is by now a teenager, as I've said. And like all teenagers, no doubt he exhibited surliness once in a while. Maybe he was a little bit, you know, cheeky with his mouth once in a while. Maybe he could be a little bit sarcastic like teenagers can be. You know how that goes, don't you? And that's where he was. So what does he do? He comes to this family gathering and perhaps there's speeches being made. You could, be, you could perhaps hear Abraham and Sarah talking with their, their guests and their family and saying, you know, we call them laughter. We call, he makes us laugh. God has brought joy into our What joy we've had in our home since Isaac came into our home. You know, our lives are complete. Now we're going to inherit the promises that God is. And you can see Ishmael in the corner. And he's mocking. Oh, yeah. Laughter. <laughs> And he's making fun of the baby, making light of the promise. 
You can see that. You know, uh, Paul refers to him at this moment as actually persecuting Isaac. In other words, the elder boy is not going to give the younger any peace. He's not going to give him time of day. He's not going to allow him to take center stage. He's determined that he's the firstborn and he should have the, the primary position. And he wasn't going to have this young fellow come along and usurp his role in that home. Earlier, Sarah had said that Isaac's name, meaning laughter, was a sign that God would, uh, that, that, that people would laugh with her. That, uh, but spying, you know, spying Ishmael belittling Isaac, she realizes he's not laughing with her. He's not entering into her joy. He's belittling her son. She's not la- he's not laughing with her. He's laughing at her. And he's laughing at him. Nobody would like that, would they? You wouldn't like it if you had a little child and somebody was belittling the child. Somebody was making fun of your moment of joy. And so all of this begins to just feed into her, into her sense of resentment about Hagar and Abraham and Ishmael. Now what Ishmael experienced that day was envy. He became covetous of Isaac's favored position Within the home. You know, the Bible says that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Envy is a terrible thing. James says, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But what Sarah experienced that day as she witnessed the humiliation of her son was jealousy. Now, I want you to understand, sometimes we use the words jealousy and envy interchangeably as though they were the same thing. But there actually, there's differences between those two emotions. Envy is always rooted in covetousness. Envy is always condemned outright by the word of God. It is sinful. It's a desire for that which is not rightfully yours. That's what envy is. Ishmael wanted to be the child of promise, but that was not rightfully his place to have. Jealousy, however, is rooted in protectiveness. It seeks to guard against that which is, it seeks to guard rather that which is rightfully mine. Our God is said to be a jealous God. That doesn't mean that he engages in some sinful emotion, but it means that he quite righteously and rightly protects his name and protects his glory and protects his testimony. Jealousy and envy are not the same thing. You know, if, if I was at a gathering sometime and maybe somebody comes along and says, Pastor, you better go over there. There's a fellow over there chatting up your wife. If I just said, well, sure, that's all right. What do I worry? She's, you know, she's probably glad somebody's chatting her up. You know, I'm not going to be bothered about that. You say there's something wrong with that man. I should take an interest, shouldn't I? I'd say, who is it? What does he think he's doing? I go with her and have a word with him. Say, this is my wife. That's jealousy. That's me protecting that which is mine. But envy is something else 
altogether. You see, there's a difference between the two. Envy is always a sin. Jealousy might lead to sin, but it's not in its first instance a sin. It's not necessarily itself an emotional sin. And there are some things that we ought to be jealous over. Listen to what the Bible says concerning Elijah, who confessed, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. He was concerned about God's name. He wanted to protect the honor of the Lord. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He says, I'm protecting you from false doctrine. I'm protecting you from false practices. I'm protecting you from sin entering into the congregation. Sarah was jealous over Isaac. And she hated seeing Ishmael treat him that way. It made her blood boil. And her response to the situation borders on the hysterical. Look in verse 10. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bond, this bond woman and her son. For the son of this bond woman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Notice her language. Twice she says it. This bond woman. Now, before she was her handmaid, remember that? In the earlier chapters, take Hagar, my handmaid. Now she is this bondwoman. She despises her. She has no sense of affection for her. Though she's been her personal maid now for over 20 years, there's no respect in those words. Those words are harsh. Those words are cutting. They're intended to demean Hagar. It's like saying, take this slave and get rid of her. She's no place in our home. For the best part of two decades, she had resented the fact that Abraham had slept with Hagar, even though it was at her say-so that that had happened. And notice she refers to Isaac as my son, in contrast to her son. Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Notice those descriptive terms. She had thrown Hagar out of the home once before, and she would throw him out of the home, throw her out of the home yet again. A second time now she's going to go. Now here's the thing, the law in that region at that time explicitly stated that it was forbidden, illegal to disown the son of a concubine. And this was exactly what uh, what Sarah was asking Abraham to do. She wanted Abraham to go against the law, to go against the culture and the custom of the day and to cast away the son of his concubine. And it hurt him deeply that she felt that way. Notice in verse 11 that he is, Ishmael is his son. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Abraham was broken at the prospect of losing Ishmael. You see, for the past 17 years, he had loved that boy. He'd cared for that boy. You know, he'd probably played with him and, and educated him and, and taught him all kinds of things about husbandry and, and farming and, and business and so on. He had developed a fatherly relationship with Ishmael. He loved Isaac too, but now he's been asked to choose between two sons. It's like a Sophie's choice, isn't it? 
He's not going to win. He's not going to come out here feeling good about himself. He's not going to come out here feeling positive about what he's been asked to do. He has to make this decision to choose whether to have Ishmael stay or Ishmael to go. To choose whether Isaac shall indeed take precedence over Ishmael. Now the last time that Sarah had advised him and he hearkened on to his wife. It ended up in disaster. It ended up as a mess. But this time God steps in and tells him that he needs to heed his wife's words. Can I say something to you that, that, that may sound strange to your ears? Sometimes differences between people can be so unreconcilable and disputes so protracted and, and irretractable that there has to be a parting of the ways in order that hearts might be allowed to heal. You see, many times we think that, and rightly so, we, we, we prefer to have a reconciliation. When people fall out, we want to have a reconciliation. We want them to get together. We want them to forgive each other. We want them to get on and move on. But sometimes that's not possible. Because a, because a dispute can run for so long. And the resentment can build to such a degree. And there's such mistrust. And there's such antipathy between the warring parties that it's actually not possible for them to remain together and, and to be reconciled. And so there needs to be a little parting of the ways, a time apart in which their hearts might heal. And then perhaps after some period of time they might be brought together again. And reconcile. We see that, for example, in the parting of Abraham and Lot earlier in this book. In the dispute between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, the two went their separate ways. We see it later on with Jacob and Esau. Esau vowing to kill Jacob because he stole his birthright. And, and Jacob having to leave the family home and going off to live with his uncle Laban. We see that even with Jacob and Laban. When Laban tricks him into marrying Leah and then uh, he marries Rachel and he realizes that this man is completely untrustworthy, that he's not worth spending time with. And so they separate and remember they, they build a monument and they call it Mizpah. The Lord watched between me and thee whilst we're apart. You know, sometimes we get, if you go into Christian bookshops sometimes or Christian uh, shops, you'll, you'll find a little necklace or a bracelet that says Mizpah on it from, uh, from the book of Genesis. And you, and you give it to your loved one. You know, if your loved one's maybe going away to university or your husband's going away from, for work or whatever, you might give him the little Mizpah necklace or bracelet or trinket or whatever, and you will say lovingly, the Lord watch between you and me while we're apart. Sounds very romantic, doesn't it? But that's not how Mizpah was said. Mizpah was said like this. The Lord watch, watch over you while we're up. I don't trust you. Even when we're apart, I don't trust you. Mizpah, the Lord watch over me while we're apart. Because I'm sure when I turn my back, you're going to stop it. That was Jacob and Laban. They separated. And even Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had a, two godly men They had an argument concerning John Mark and the Bible says that so sharp was the contention between them that Paul went one way and Barnabas went another. 
Now, both of these were fine Christian men. Both of them meant the best. Both of them wanted to do the will of God. Both of them wanted to be in mission. But they disagreed about how they would do that to such a degree that there was, that there was sharp words between them. And then they said, you go your way and I'll go my way. And sometimes that's necessary. You see, here's the thing. Ishmael's presence in that home was ever going to be a problem, wasn't it? Not just on this day of the weaning celebration, not just on this day when Isaac began his education, but it was going to be an ongoing problem. It was going to be an ongoing situation. Ishmael was never going to get over Isaac, and Isaac was never going to get peace from Ishmael, and Hagar was always going to be the third woman in the relationship, and Sarah was always going to be looking across the dinner table and resenting Hagar's role in her husband's life. And so Hagar and Ishmael had to go. And notice then in verses 14 through 21, there was a journey from that home. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. She went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand. For I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Now here's the thing that strikes me as I read this. When Abraham dismisses Hagar and Ishmael from his home. There's not a, not a sign of protest. It's like they understand. It's, it's like they're in agreement that they realize that things have become so difficult between them that there was no other option. It's as if everyone has agreed together that this is really for their best. And Abraham saw that they were provided for for their journey, but no more than that. Look, look at all he gives them. You know, he gives them some bread. He gives them some water. That's all. Now, bear in mind that he's a very wealthy man. A little bread, a little water just to get you on your way. It seems very mean. Heartless almost. Why was Abraham so mean? Why so little provision? Well, here's why. Because he's got to, according to God's command, heed his wife's words. And notice that she says in verse 10, that the son of this born woman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. In other words, anything that was afforded to Ishmael was seen as being taken out of Isaac's inheritance. Isaac was to receive the entirety of his inheritance, and Ishmael was to get nothing. And as before, Hagar finds herself now an outcast. She enters into despair, having run out of water, and Ishmael grows weak, and he 
faints in the desert and she drags him under a, a shrub for shade and then she, she goes a bow shot away and turns her back upon him and she begins to weep and she begins to, uh, to cry and to pray. Uh, but I want you to notice something. Notice in verse 17 whose words it is that God hears. And God heard the voice of the lad. Not the voice of Hagar. Before he heard the voice of Hagar. Thou God seest me. Remember that? But here he hears the voice of the lad. It's Ishmael who's doing the praying. You know, it's Ishmael who is crying out now unto God. You see, he was laughing and he was mocking and he was belittling Isaac before. But he's not laughing now. He's not mocking now. He's not quite so lighthearted at this point in his life. You see, God has brought him to the end of himself and he's praying. Isn't that true? You know, you've heard the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. I remember watching a news story a number of years ago, just two or three years ago, actually. And if you remember, they had the terrible bushfires in, uh, in Australia, uh, over in the eastern side of Australia. There were terrible bushfires and. And people were, uh, at one point, were stranded on a beach. And the fire was surrounding them. They were completely locked in. And their only hope then to escape the fire as they saw it, was, if they needed to, was to make their way into the sea. And so after the fire had been dealt with, the news teams came and they interviewed these people. And they said to them, well, you know, what did you do there on the beach when you felt like your life was over, like the fire was encroaching and you were going to die? And here's what they said. They said, we did a lot of praying. Now understand something. Australia is one of the most godless nations on, on the planet. I mean, those people largely hate God and every thought of God. They are absolutely opposed to God. I would say they're not just atheistic. Uh, You know, I would say they're misotheistic. They actually hate God. Not just they say there's no God, but they hate any notion of God. And yet with all, when this fire was coming in upon these people, these godless people, they said, we did a lot of praying. You see, it's easy to have bravado when there's no imminent threat to your life. It's easy to act big when nobody's going to take you down. It's easy to discount God until you're on the cusp of meeting God. And then everything changes. Then when you're at death's door, suddenly your perspective changes. Let the circumstance change. And Ishmael goes from laughter to praying in just a few moments. Now, although all of these things actually happened, and what we're reading about here is an historical account that occurred to real people, God later employs all of these events as an object lesson, expressing the difference between law and grace. Go with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verse 22. Notice what it says, referencing Genesis 21. It says, for it is written, verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. 
Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bond woman and her son. For the son of the bond woman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bond woman, but of the free Here's what we find here. Hagar and Ishmael represent the law. The son of Abraham, this son of Abraham, settles in Sinai, the place where the Ten Commandments, or all the commandments, in fact, were given. And he pictures legalism in all of its forms, answering to the law. Sarah and Isaac represent God's grace. Through his own procreative power, Abraham could, not, uh, could have had Ishmael, but he could not have had Isaac. Ishmael represents the work of the flesh. Isaac represents an act of grace. Now what part does the law and legalism and the flesh play in a believer's life? Here's the answer. No part. No part. I want you to get this. Legalism has to be cast out. You see, as long as, as long as you and I are subject to legalism, as long as Hagar and Ishmael live under our roof, we're going to be miserable. If you're living your life by a code, if you're living your life by a list of commandments, if you're living your life by a tick box, Christians don't do this, and Christians don't do that, and Christians do this, and Christians do that, and that's the way you're living your life, I want you to understand something. You've been brought under bondage. God doesn't intend us to live that way. Legalism has no place in our lives. And Abraham's meager provisions for Hagar and Ishmael remind us that we must make no provision for the flesh. Legalism feeds into the flesh. Instead of me glorying in the Lord, I feel good about myself. I'm a good person. I'm upright. I'm moral. I'm noble. It's all me and me and me. There's opportunity for boasting, for a a spirit of self-righteousness. But with grace, there is no such allowance made. I cannot come and, and submit myself to grace and say, that's anything of me. You see, the law brings men and women into bondage. But grace sets us free. Now, don't get me wrong here. We're not free to sin, but we're free from sin. In other words, our obedience is not because we're subject to a legal code, but our obedience is because we're subject to the transforming grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, that we have surrendered to the work of the Spirit in our lives, so that our lives are governed now not by, not by legislation, but by the law of grace. 
Salvation comes entirely by grace. Saving grace, forgiving grace, transforming grace. And so we're to cast out this bond woman of the law and her son and to live in the freedom and in the faith that Christ can bring. Well, there's a tremendous lesson for all of us in this chapter, not only pertaining to salvation, but also in sin and the damage it does to our relationships. It's certainly true that all who put their trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven their sin. But that's not to say that the sins of our past are not without consequence. Sarah's past sin soured her celebration of Isaac's life. It colored her marriage with Abraham and absolutely poisoned her relationship to Hagar, who was initially her handmaid, but in the end, this bond woman. This episode was a tragedy for all of them. And here's what we learn in Genesis chapter 21, is this, families can be messy. You know, sometimes in in families, particularly Christian families, we want to have all our ducks in a row, don't we? But sometimes families can get messy. Sometimes problems arise, and even church families can be messy. What we have to recognize is that we live in a broken world, you and I. No one is perfect. No family is perfect. Most of you are probably, and many of you are too young to remember the Waltons, but some of us are old enough to remember the Walton family. Do you remember the Waltons? Is that just me? The Walton family were like the perfect family. They lived in the hills, I think, of Tennessee or someplace. They had a perfect home, a log home. No matter what happened, they always worked it out, and they always went to bed at night, and they always said good night to each other. And if you remember that show, you'd always end at the end of the night, all the brothers and sisters said good night to each other. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Mary Ellen. They all said it was, it was great. Do you know what I found? I found most families are less like the Waltons and more like the Simpsons. They're messy. There's problems. We don't always go to bed at night saying good night to each other. Sometimes we go to bed feeling quite happy that you know we just manage not to throttle the other person. So there's times when we hurt each other and, and yet despite those hurts and that pain, we have to determine to live as Christ enables us for him no matter what. We have to work through the mess. We have to come up with solutions. And here's the thing I want you to remember this morning. That God cares for us all. In Genesis chapter 21, God cared about Sarah by actually allowing Hagar to leave. That was for Sarah's sake. He cared about Sarah. He cared for Abraham by promising to bless Ishmael, his son. He cared for Hagar by providing for her needs when her meager provision had run out in the desert. He cared for Ishmael by blessing him as he becomes a great nation. You see, here's the thing I want you to get this morning. Even the people who agitate us, even the people we may dislike, even the people we're at loggerheads with, even people that we've entered into protracted disputes with, even those people God loves and cares about, You see, he loves us all. He cares for us all. However messy our homes or our churches or whatever other area of our life might be. 
And we should try and remember that. We find ourselves at loggerheads with somebody else. We should try and remember God loves that person. God cares about that person. And I should try to love them. And I should try to care for them also. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to sing our closing hymn this morning. I have a shepherd. What?